The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. Several years ago, I was in St. Louis driving on one of the major highways, Highway 70, and I was going eastbound towards the airport. And it was a day like most days. It was sunny out. It was nice. And there was plenty of traffic in both lanes of the highway. And so I was going eastbound towards the airport. And all of a sudden, all the traffic in the westbound lane ended. It was almost like somebody turned off a faucet and there were no more cars. And so I thought, maybe there's an accident. Maybe something went bad. And so all the cars just got held up. But then it became even stranger because as I was traveling eastbound, I noticed at all the westbound exit, there were police cars keeping people from coming on the highway. And I wasn't quite sure what was happening. Finally, I got to the end of it and there were police cars going across the highway and there was miles of traffic behind it. And I had no idea why they were stopping the traffic. I was really puzzled. And so that night I turned on the news to see why did they stop all this traffic? And it mentioned nothing about the accident. But the headline news was, the president has come to town. And evidently, in preparation for the president, they shut down one of the most major highways in St. Louis in order that he could travel to his destination both safe and unimpeded. You know, it's amazing how cities prepare to receive the president. I read a blog this week by a transit authority in San Jose. When the president came to San Jose, they actually shut down all of the subway stations within a certain parameter of the president's hotel. And the subway stations that were just outside that parameter, they actually brought in dogs, or dog sniffing dogs. That's every dog, isn't it? (laughs) Oh, man. They brought in bomb-sniffing dogs to go through all the cars and make sure that the president was safe. When he came to Madison, uh, to a middle school, they shut down many streets and many different things, and they actually put the school in lockdown at 8.15 a.m., and if your kid was late, they were out for the day. And they would go through uh, some airport-type security take their little cute shoes off, give them x-rayed, all those things, all in preparation for the president. You know, as you think about when you welcome visitors, you prepare your house to a certain degree, and and kind of the, the, the bigger deal that the person is, the more you prepare your house. If you have some close friends coming over, maybe you'll pick things up and shove them in the closet or under the bed or whatever it might be. If the mayor is coming over, you'll probably scrub the bathroom floor. If the president was coming over, you might just repaint your whole house. But you prepare according to kind of the bigness of the person that is coming. And so the question I want to ask this morning is how do you prepare to encounter God on Sunday mornings? You know, today we're going to look at a passage in which it's the beginning of a covenant Uh, between God and the people of Israel through his mediator, Moses. Every Sunday when we gather here together, we are involved in a covenant renewal in which we are remembering and reestablishing both God's commitment to us and our commitment to God. And as we come in on Sunday mornings, we get to encounter God in very special and unique ways that we don't throughout the week. 
Don't get me wrong, throughout the week you get to encounter God in wonderful ways. But as we gather here together, we get to sing corporately as a people of God towards God. As we gather together, we get to hear the preaching of God's word. We get to commune with God through the sacraments. We get to hear his blessing and his benediction. And this is a very special time that we get together to encounter God. And I'm like, my question is, do you prepare for that? If you're like me, uh, you probably would say that it's lacking. And so the question is, how should we prepare for God? On Sunday mornings, if you would please open up to Exodus chapter 19, it's page 60 in the red Bible, page 117 in the children's Bible. We'll read it in chunks because it's a longer passage. But just to remind you, we have followed Israel on their journey out of Egypt through the Red Sea to Mara, to the wilderness of sin, to Rephidim. And now they have come to the base of Mount Sinai. And the base of Mount Sinai is where the rest of the book of Exodus takes place. Starting here in Exodus 19, God, again, he's engaging in a covenant with Israel. If you think of the word covenant, and that's confusing to you, think of a marriage ceremony. There is a marriage covenant that takes place in which one person is vowing themselves to another for the rest of their lives. And so here in Exodus 19, God is actually preparing the people to engage in this covenant. But he's also preparing them to encounter him at Mount Sinai. And so as we look and see the preparation of their heart to encounter God, we might even look at our own hearts and our own lives and say, how might we prepare to encounter God on Sunday mornings? So let's open in a word of prayer before we look to God's word. Lord, we confess we come to church so frequently just either out of obligation, begrudgingly, or we come flippantly or recklessly, or we are so distracted by all the other things going on with the rest of our day. So often we are distracted by the squeaky seat or the person chewing gum or just by something that pops up in our head. And so God, pray that you would make us a people that are transformed, that seek to prepare to encounter the living God every Sunday morning. Help our distracted hearts to focus upon you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There are three things I want us to see from this passage and how we should prepare our hearts to worship and enjoy God on Sunday mornings. In our preparation, we should remember our salvation. We should recommit our obedience. And finally, we should revere our God's holiness. And so those are the three things I want to look at. First, as we prepare our hearts for worship, we should remember our salvation. Look in verse 1 with me of Exodus chapter 19. It says, on the third new moon after the prophet of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt. That's about seven weeks. On the day they came into the wilderness of Sinai, they set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai. And they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain saying, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, And tell the people of Israel, you yourself have seen what I did to the Egyptians 
and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. In this covenant preamble, God is announcing the parties that are involved in this covenant relationship. It is the Lord and the house of Jacob or the people of Israel. And there is a mediator between God and the people. And that mediator is Moses. And so God begins by commanding Moses. The very first thing in establishing this covenant is he commands Moses to remind the people of their salvation, to remind the people of what the Lord God has done for them. Specifically there in verse four, there are three things that God calls to mind in understanding our salvation. Ligon Duncan, in speaking on this, described them as divine judgment, divine deliverance, and divine drawing. First, you see the divine judgment. He says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. Remember, Israel was in bondage. They were in slavery. They were being tortured. They were oppressed. And God came in and humiliated Pharaoh, sunk the Egyptian army. And God's power and might, he brought Israel up out of slavery. He triumphed over their enemies, giving them a freedom that they could have never won on their own. And so he says, remember the divine judgment, but also remind, remember the divine deliverance. He says, and how I bore you on eagles' wings. God is describing himself as a mother eagle who swoops down to save her eaglet out of potential harm and to carry that eaglet on her wings back to safety, back to the nest. In their flight from Egypt, Israel was extremely vulnerable in the wilderness. And yet the Lord provided a path through the Red Sea. He provided water at Mara. He provided food in the wilderness. He even provided military victory at Rephidim. The Lord had provided, he had put them on his back to carry them through, to deliver them to their destination. And finally, there is the divine drawing. Verse four again, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. God brought Israel out of Egypt for a very specific purpose. It wasn't just so that they could be free from slavery, but he brought them out of Egypt to bring them to himself. You see, Mount Sinai was God's tabernacle. He was bringing the people to himself. He was bringing them into relationship with him. God was bringing them into a covenant, a committed covenant between one another. A covenant that was not till death do we do us part, but a covenant that would be a commitment for all eternity. Now, why does the Lord begin this covenant process by reminding Israel of their salvation? Why does he command Moses, remind them of all I did to save them? Well, it's because God is going to ask Israel to commit to him as he has committed to them. You see, in our heart, we so often doubt, does God love me? Is God dependable? Is God trustworthy? Will he be there when I need him? And so God reassures them of his love and his power and his faithfulness to them, that they might engage in this covenant relationship with him. A few weeks ago, my kids were 
finishing up school. And there's a lot of memory work with their schooling. And so we gave them different prizes according to what level of achievement they got on their memory work. And I was sitting down with one of my kids and I asked him, I said, what's the prize if you get to this level of memory work? And my child said to me, well, it's, it's something that you probably won't like. And I thought, what, what is the prize that I probably won't like? Is it going to be video games or is it going to be ice cream or something? What, what would be that prize? And so I said, what was, what's the prize that I'm not going to like? And my child said, if we get to that level of memory, then we get to go out to lunch with you. And I thought, ugh. It's like a punch in the gut. I said, I'm so sorry that you would think that I would not delight to go out to lunch with you. I'm sorry for whatever I've done to somehow communicate that. I'm sure there are things I've done. I know I get frustrated. I know I get busy. And I'm so very sorry that you would not think your dad would be delighted to go out to lunch with you. And I started to remind my child of all the ways that I expressed my love whether it be playing sports with them or coaching their team or whether it be cuddling with them in bed and telling them that they're my favorite child in the whole universe. But reminding them of how much I care for them and how much I love them. And what God is doing in this situation in calling the people to recall their salvation is to remind them of his love towards them, of his faithfulness to them. You know, I am not a perfect father, but he is. And yet their hearts are still wondering, is God a God worth committing to? And he's saying, look at what I've done. Look how I've loved you. Look how I've cared for you. Look how I have bore you on the wings of eagles. Come into a covenant relationship with me. We should prepare for worship by remembering our salvation, remembering God's great love for us in Christ Jesus that he brought his divine judgment upon his son, Jesus, on our behalf to triumph over his enemies and ours. For Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. He has brought divine deliverance, bringing us out of the bondage of sin, bringing us through the valley of the shadow of death. And he has drawn us to himself into his embrace into his love forever. And so we should prepare our hearts for worship by remembering our salvation. Secondly, we should prepare our hearts for worship by recommitting our obedience. Verse 5 says, Now therefore, if you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. I want to pause there for a second because I think this verse can be very confusing. If you take this verse all by itself and you take it in isolation, you'd be tempted to think that God's love for the people is contingent on their obedience. That God would not love them or cherish them if they were not completely obedient to God's law. But what's so vital to see is that verse 5 comes after verse 4. In verse 4, God reminded them of his great and unconditional and unfailing love, how he had already saved them and delivered them and brought them on eagles' wings and brought them to himself. All of that has already been accomplished. And it's in the context of their salvation 
that he says, obey me, obey my voice, obey my covenant, and you shall be my treasured possession. God is not saying, obey me and I will save you because he has already done that. He's already claimed Israel as his beloved firstborn son. Now, the order of these two verses is absolutely critical because in every other religion, verse 5 comes before verse 4. In every other religion, their God says, obey me and be saved. But the Lord says, I saved you. I loved you. I carried you out of Egypt. I brought you to myself. Now obey. The same is true this this. This order is true throughout all of Scripture. That obedience comes as a result of salvation, not a contribution to our salvation. If you look in the very next chapter, Exodus 20, which is the Ten Commandments, before God lists out these commandments, he reminds them once again. It starts like this. The Ten Commandments start by saying, I'm the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Therefore, boom. He's saying, listen, your obedience is based in who you are and your salvation. You've been saved. You've been set free. So now live free. We see this pattern continue in the New Testament. In Ephesians 2, verse 8, you can read on the screen behind me. It says, for by grace, which means not by anything you've done or merited, but by grace, you have been saved through faith, not by works, through faith. And this is not your own doing, not something you did, but a gift of God. If that wasn't emphatic enough, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Four times in these two verses, God is saying you are not saved by your good works. But then he goes on to explain what the correct understanding of good works are. Verse 10, he said, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus or recreated, or reborn in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I've seen this diagram put this way, which is helpful in picturing this, and I just call it salvation math. But in every other religion, the equation goes like this. Faith plus good works leads to salvation. But what makes Christianity unique is that faith leads to salvation and good works. And so when we're looking at this passage, verse 5 here, and it says, do these things and you shall be my cherished possession, we have to make sure we understand that it comes after verse 4 in which their salvation came. And so the question is, what does verse 5 mean for us? If it doesn't mean we have to earn God's love and earn his salvation, what is it to mean for us? What it is telling the saved and delivered and chosen people of Israel is that obedience is the way of blessing. And not only is obedience the way of blessing, obedience is the way of freedom. And not only is obedience the way of freedom, obedience is the way of shining bright before all the world. Occasionally, my kids and I will get on the floor and we will act like bears and we'll growl and we'll pretend to eat each other and we'll wrestle with each other and But then there comes a time where enough is enough, right? And we got to start acting like human beings again and get up on our two feet and walk around. You know, if I were to continue that bear pose and the growling and I I came through the doors and I came up here like a bear and, whoa, you guys would probably think, 
You know, weird, weird stuff. And if you're bold enough, you would say, Dan, you're not a bear. You're human. Act like a human being. You see, what God is commanding them in this is he's saying, listen, you are no longer slaves, but you are now my cherished people. You are now a a, a priesthood of people. You are now a holy nation. Be who you are. You see, when we disobey God's law, we're actually acting contrary to who God made us to be in Christ. And so he is calling his people to be who he has already made them to be so that the watching world would know the glory of God. You see, God has saved us and redeemed us. He has made us his own. He's made us treasured and holy in Christ. And when we obey God, we actually become more fully human. We become who we are meant to be in Christ, who we are already declared to be in Christ. It goes on, verse 5. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my, and then here are three things that happens when we obey God. You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. You see the outward focus of this? You'll be like a city on a hill. Verse 6, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. When, when the people of Israel obeyed God's law throughout the Old Testament, what you saw was this continual blessing poured out upon Israel. And they were put on this major trade route. And as people would come by, they would look and say, whose God is that that blesses them so richly? Look how unique they are. And yet when they disobeyed God, when they went after other gods, God would bring judgment upon them. And they didn't shine like a city on a hill. But the people would walk by and say, whose God brings destruction like that? There to be a city on a hill, a treasured possession, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation to all the nations of the earth. And as we turn to the New Testament, we see we are called to be the same. In 1 Peter, which is in the New Testament after the death and resurrection ascension of Jesus. It says this to the church. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Notice it doesn't say you will be. It says you are. A people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. We are the people of God. The church universal is the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And now here it goes in to explain how the obedience to God's law, to God's law of love, a joyful, humble obedience, not begrudging obedience to God's law actually makes us distinct in the world, makes us shine to the world, testifies to the goodness and greatness and glory of God in the world. He says, dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires, which war against your soul, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds 
and glorify God on the day he visits us. This is what Israel was called to do, to obey God, to obey the law of love for God and the love for others, and that others might see those glorious deeds and worship the one true God. When we obey God, we show the world that we are God's treasured possession. This term means the most precious part of a king's riches. Kings have lots of riches, but this would be that most precious thing, whether it be a painting or a sculpture, whatever it might be. You are showing the world that you are the most treasured people of all of God's riches. You're also becoming a kingdom, a priest. The priest's job was to was to lead the people before God and to, to bring God to the people and to connect the two. And they're saying, you get to show the world the goodness and greatness of God. This isn't just for the clergy. This is for the whole nation to do. And 30 said, you will be a holy nation. You will be a nation set apart. You will be different than every other nation. You will be a distinct community that, that is marked with joy and generosity and love and grace. And this is what is to be our distinction in the world. As we obey God, as we recommit ourselves to obedience, we realize that God's law is not a burden, but it is a gift of his grace to lead us into joy. And so as we prepare for Sunday mornings, we should prepare remembering our salvation, the great love with which God loved us. We should also recommit our obedience, seeking to be who God created us and redeemed us to be. And finally, we should prepare our hearts by revering our God's holiness. Look at verse 9 with me. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe you forever. God, once again, wants to confirm to Israel that Moses is a mediator, and they should listen to him. It continues on. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot, whether beast or man. He shall not love live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. God commands the people to be consecrated, for Moses to consecrate the people, which means to prepare them simply to be in the same region as the appearance of God. God is so glorious that he has to keep his people at a distance for their own protection. He has to veil himself behind clouds so that they won't perish. For if any part of God is revealed to any person, they will most certainly die. Just to put it in perspective for you, whenever angels appear in the Bible, they start out by saying what? Don't be afraid. Fear not, right? Because they are these glorious and amazing and brilliant beings. But all of their glory comes from simply being in the presence of God. They are a dim reflection of the glory of God. And yet they have to say to human beings, don't be afraid. Don't be scared. It's okay. And yet that's just a remnant, a small remnant of God's glory. And it causes utter terror upon those that they visit. 
And so God is a glorious creature. Verse 14. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people. And they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the mountain, on the morning of the third day, there, was, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. How awesome is this God that under his glory, a mountain quaked. We have lost our awe of God, haven't we? We have forgotten his majesty and his glory and his holiness and his awesomeness. We have tried to fit God in our box, make him palatable to society. We've tried to make God our homeboy. But he is God. And he is holy. And we must not come to him in worship casually or flippantly or irreverently. We must come to him with awe and godly fear and reverence. You know, just a few chapters later in Exodus 33, God says to Moses very succinctly, No one may see me and live. The Lord God is unapproachable. The Lord God is completely unapproachable by sinful people. He's completely unapproachable by all of us. No matter how much you consecrate yourself, no matter how many times you clean your clothes or do any ceremonial washing, God is completely unapproachable by you. It is not safe for you to be in the presence of almighty God. This is again, a great reminder of the awe and reverence and fear that we must come to the Lord with, not just in our daily lives, but as we come to worship him. Let's continue the passage. Verse 19, it says, and as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, can you picture this? Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up and the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people lest they break through to the Lord to look and may many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he breaks out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. There is this great dilemma in this passage. In verse 4 and in earlier passages, we are told that God brings the people out of Egypt to bring them to himself, to bring them into an intimate covenant relationship with himself. 
And yet here we read that God and sinners cannot be together, that they cannot be within the same space because they would perish. And so the question is, how does this happen? How can it be that God can accomplish his purpose of bringing sinful men close to him, into intimacy with him, as if if they come close, they will die? This is Israel's dilemma. This is also our dilemma. And it's heartbreaking because this is the very thing our hearts long for, to be intimate relationship with God. And so how can this happen? How can we draw near to holy God? The solution is provided by God himself, who in his bountiful grace and love provides for Israel a mediator. Moses was the mediator between sinful Israel and a holy God. Like Israel, we need a mediator. We need a go-between. We need someone who can bridge the gap between us and a holy God. Someone who can consecrate us, not just externally and ceremonially, but from the inside out. And the good news is that God has provided for us a greater mediator than Moses. 1 Timothy 2 says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and And men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is a testimony given at the proper time. Moses was not a perfect mediator. In fact, he was kept out of the promised land because of his own pride. But there is one perfect mediator, one covenant keeper, one promise keeper the Lord Jesus Christ, who is both God and man and can mediate between the two. He came to earth and obeyed the Mosaic law perfectly that he could go before God, that he could ransom our soul by dying on the cross to pay the price for our breaking of the covenant and then rising from the dead and ascending into heaven where he now mediates for you and me at the right hand of the Father. There is a tool in the church called Evangelism Explosion. It's meant to help people share their faith. And one of the main questions in it is to ask other people, is if you were to die tonight and stood before God and he asked you, why should I let you into my kingdom? What would you say? So what would you, what would you, don't answer out loud, but what would you say if you, if you died tonight and you stood before God and he said, why should I let you into my kingdom? What would you say? Would you say, well, I tried hard to be a good guy, good lady. Sure, I made mistakes, but I'm pretty good. I, I went to church a few times or every week. I helped out at church. I, I helped those in need. If that's your answer, you'll be condemned for all eternity. Not because you didn't do noble things, but because your sin is so much bigger than you can even imagine. And it keeps you out of the presence of a holy God. You cannot look to yourself for the answer to that question. You have to point to your mediator. And you have to trust your mediator, Jesus Christ. You must say, I don't belong here. I cannot be in the presence of a holy God. But there is one who has gone before me, a mediator. It's not on my credentials, but on his credentials that I belong in the kingdom of God. And the time to make that decision is not when you die. The time to make that decision is now. 
Is Jesus Christ your mediator between you and a holy God? Or do you try to mediate yourself? Because if you mediate yourself, you are out of luck. It is not going to go well. But point and trust in the mediator, Jesus Christ. And he will stand before you. God is unapproachable to hungry souls because he is holy and righteous and awesome, unlike us. But you can come to him through the great mediator, Jesus Christ. Let me end with this. As maybe you know, before Jacob's Well, I served on staff at New Hope Church on the other side of town, which is Preble, by Preble High School. It was a great experience for me, a very loving community. One of my friends went to go visit New Hope Church, and afterwards I said, what did you think? And he said, you know, they were kind of rude. And I was curious because that wasn't my experience. And so I said, what do you mean they were rude? He said, well, when we got there, we got there a few minutes before worship started, and and people were kind of in the seats, and they were to themselves, and they weren't really talking to other people. It was kind of cold. And so I, I kind of laughed. I said, do you want to know why they were rude? He's like, yeah, why? Because they were preparing for worship. Don't get me wrong. Fellowship is an important part of our worship. But they weren't there simply to be entertained but to worship the living God. And they were preparing their hearts to worship the living God. And so the question is, do you prepare your hearts to come and worship? Let me just give you a few very practical opportunities. First, Saturday. Saturday is a great time to to come before the Lord in silence and to remember these things and to go before the Lord and say, prepare my heart for worship. You know, some have said that Sunday morning worship starts Saturday night, getting a good night's sleep under your belt so you can come in focused and hear from God's word. But it can also happen Sunday morning, taking some quiet time to to go before the Lord and say, God, prepare me to come into your presence. For us, many times what we do is on the drive to church, we say, kids, we're going to be quiet and we're going to take this 15-minute drive to prepare our hearts to worship the Lord. Maybe you come early and, and there's a thing on the screen that says, take this time to prepare your hearts to worship. You can also prepare your hearts during the midst of worship. There are plenty of opportunities to do. It's really not that difficult. It's just doing it. And when we do it, when we take our time to prepare our hearts to worship, we must do so remembering our salvation, remembering God's great love and mercy towards us in Christ, recommitting our obedience, devoting ourselves to God's statutes and submitting to his word that we might reflect that we are God's treasured possession to the whole world. And we must do so revering God's holiness. Here's the reality. You don't deserve to be here this morning. Neither do I. It's so funny we see something to be a burden that is actually an extraordinary privilege. You don't deserve to be in the presence of God. But the good news is we have a mediator, Jesus Christ. And we get to come here and meet with God and commune with him and enjoy him together. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the privilege of Sunday mornings to come and renew our covenant, to be reminded of your great love for us and your great grace for us. Lord, we are such a busy people and such a distracted people. 
Lord, I pray as we lead into Sundays coming forward that you would bring to mind this passage. That we would pause and take time to prepare our hearts to encounter the living God. To worship you, to enjoy you, and to hear from you. Guide us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.